Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Contramundum. Uh, I am uh, one of the hosts, Andrew Isker, and with me is my co-host, CJ Engel, and we're very pleased to introduce uh, Lafayette Lee. Lafayette is a uh, an excellent poster and uh, writes uh, in many places. Uh, uh, I am 1776 is, is one of the places you can find his work. Uh, tons of great, great uh, articles and things that he's written. And uh, welcome to the show, uh, Lafayette Lee. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to be here. And yeah, before we recorded, we uh, CJ and I got to see his you know actual face, and he he looks exactly like Clark Gable. So the avatar that he has really is 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 basically a face dox anyway. So uh, just so you all know, this is the first. Uh, on the show, this is this is the first guest we've had that is is not a face poster, and and so just just imagine Clark Gable uh, behind that screen the entire time, and that's that's the guy, that's who we're talking to. Um, yes, exactly, exactly. And so, uh, you know, we we wanted to uh, we wanted to have uh, Lafayette on today because we've we've talked uh, multiple times, at least in passing, about uh, the New Deal, about the middle of you know, the, the 20th century, really the revolution that happened in America in, in the 20th century and and all of the things, I mean, all of, you know, things that I talk about, the CJ talks about, about trash world, about about what we exist in now today, uh, really has its genesis in uh, 1933 um, with uh, the New Deal and FDR and, and everything that came in during that time. And, and Lafayette, I think, is really the expert on this period of history um, the, the one guy that I'm like, we got to have him on to talk about this stuff and really dive deep into what it is, what it means, um, because it's, it's, it's really an unknown part of American history. All of, I mean, I went to public school, CJ, I think you were homeschooled, weren't you? Or you were, you went to Christian. School? I was homeschooled. Yeah. yeah. But, but even, even within like the, the homeschool world, Christian school world, we still get, you still get kind of the, the mm -hmm. court court narrative of American history where, um, like even if I talk to like older, you know, boomer relatives, you know, people I know, and I, I, you know, ones that are very conservative Trump voters even. Um, and I ask them, well, what do you think about FDR? What do you think about the new deal? They'll, they'll, they'll speak about it positively. They'll be like, well, you know, he was, he was a Democrat. He was bad, but you know, he, he, he helped the country out and we won world war two because of him. He was, he was a good president. Um, and so even, even they will think highly of him. And, and this time period. Um, and that is, that's a major problem. Like we have to be able to understand actually what happened in order to address, you know, what's happening to us now. Um, so what, uh, what's so bad about the new deal? What's so bad about, uh, this, this period, uh, Lafayette in your, your opinion? Uh, no, it's a, it's a fascinating period of time. And I think really, I don't, people that are, are critical of the present. I don't know how they can, you can't really formulate much of an argument or understand what we're dealing with if you don't grapple with the New Deal. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to come here and say that, um, like, I'm not a libertarian. And so I'm not going to come in yeah. and say, you know, like the New Deal just spe you know, specifically ruined everything. I, I kind of take a more historical perspective that what the, that in many ways, the New Deal was responding uh, to a real crisis. And I'm not just talking about the, the financial crisis in America. There was massive 
uh, changes going on all throughout the world. So you can see this time period where you have the rise of, mm -hmm. you know, Bolshevism came before it. Uh, you have the rise of fascism in Europe, uh, questions about, you know, how do we deal with this? And then so in the United States, you know, the United States is this place that we have always kind of charted our own course. We're different. We're strange. You know, the Europeans look at us and they don't quite get it. And we look at them and we don't really quite get it either. You know, they, they don't <laughs> think we have much of a culture. We're a still kind of like coming back from this frontier society. We've been a frontier society for most of our, our you know, history. So like we don't really we don't really have much, even though we have like these European roots and ties, we aren't really European altogether. And that's like really important to understand because it isn't like you could just do a carbon copy of fascism or communism. America to respond to these same tensions and pressures that the rest of these countries are dealing with at that time. Right. And so I, I think it's important, like as much as I harangue communism and I believe it had a major impact on the United States. But I, I also think like some of the, the ideals and the ethos of fascism also had a lot of impact on America at this early stage uh, because we became kind of a catch all for really good and bad ideas coming from Europe. And this was something that was you know in the works for a very long time. You know, like communism came to America almost during the Civil War, right? So we have more, you know, war between the states, whatever, you know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, but you have, I mean, this this ideology came over here earlier than people realize, you know, that these yeah. things were, it found a foothold, but it, it was still kind of a strange, these were strange ideas. And America didn't really, they were, America was always confident because, you know, we just are not Europe. We do not have the same, we don't have the same uh, history. We don't have the limitations. We have a continent that we've tamed, right? So there's like so much, we have such a distance too. So that's important to kind of set up what the New Deal was and what it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Something that I want to get to though on the on the New Deal is the New Deal is, is not just like, we look at it through an economic lens. We, we tend to like, we tend to kind of just, compartmentalize events in mm. history, look at it through a strictly economic lens or through, I think the political lens is really important. And for some reason, as politically minded as we all are today, is we overlook this aspect of it. Uh, FDR was a political, like a really like a, a had a, a level of genius when it came to politics. He was an incredibly adept political operator. This guy knew yeah. how, and I mean, it's incredible. So when, and one other thing I want to say is when you look at the president, you get frustrated with how, you know, let's say that you're angry because the Democrats pull, you know, they, they pull these shenanigans and half of the mm -hmm. population is still convinced that like these disastrous policies are really good. I mean, this, that we're living in the shadow of this new America that came about in the 1930s and it was a new America. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, because the same these like these same shenanigans, as we'd say, but like these same political decisions and the propaganda and the ability to outfox your competition and to take on patronage to crush, you know, enemies, but also buy in allies. I mean, the FDR perfected this during this time, and he was able to amass an incredible amount of power doing so uh, very in many ways created a one party state. OK, so sorry for all the, uh, you know, digging, you know, kind of digging around the foundations oh. of this. Um, oh, this is excellent. Yeah, <laughs> it's excellent but, because it, 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 uh, it you know, it, it establishes really just how how unique it was and how uh, 
much of a radical departure it was. And even, I mean, when we talk about the uniparty or the regime today, I mean, that, that that's what you're talking about here is yeah. it had its, its formation during this time period where, you know, whether it's Democrat or Republican, there's this, um, there's this uniparty. I mean, even, even if you look at like Ukraine today and Mitch McConnell is, is, you know, when, when he's actually able to speak, um, what he, what he's saying is, oh, we need to have more money for Ukraine. And the entire Congress is like, yep, yep, definitely. And, and so you see this kind of uniparty action and it's, it's part, you know, it, it's the same thing that you're describing right here, that this one party state in, in America, um, that, that he formed, um, I mean, would, would you agree with that? Is that is that is really along the same lines? Yeah, no, I think there's I mean, there's there's some incredible parallels that I think are just they're so poignant. Um, it's it, it kind of gives me goosebumps, you know, sometimes when I yeah. when we start going through this, because like if you think about it. So we do have like people call it the uniparty today. Uh, but yeah, this is very similar to that time period where you have an inner party and an outer party. The outer party, the only way that they can really wield any kind of power is by playing the game and, and basically yeah. agreeing to be the inner, you know, the outer party. The the authentic reaction to or like genuine reaction to FDR that's a true opposition would be embodied by, strangely enough, America first. And so you yeah. have this America first movement. And how is America first dismantled? I mean, it was FDR was able to smear the entire operation as being mm. proto-fascist, Nazis, mm. anti-Semitic. So they, and and they're while I mean it's the similar today. So people still, when I talk about America First, uh, the original America First committee, when you talk about mm. Charles, Lim, everybody knows maybe Charles Lindbergh, uh, even yeah. though he was not. I mean, he was more of a figurehead, not necessarily yeah. like a mover and shaker within the organization. Um, that's what they'll always latch on to. What they're doing, and yeah. you know, I don't fault people for doing this, but they are hanging on to the leftovers, mostly of propaganda from that time period. If you dig yeah. into the details, when you start actually reading about this moment in history, the rise and fall of that organization, I mean, it, it just the his, it does not comport with the historical record as we know it. And so it's interesting that you see a rise of a brown scare today. I mean, really... Yeah. I, of Donald Trump was yeah. the response was to gin up another brown scare, very similar yeah. to what happened with uh, Roosevelt and his party and the opposition. Uh, and then also when it comes to war, that somehow the anti-war, the pro-pacifist, you know, people who at least claim that mantle are now smearing people as being in the employ of a foreign power if they oppose mm -hmm into another war, a proxy war. And this is exactly what happened in that time period. It's it's, it's weird and it's it's funny. I can't take it seriously. And I think this is like one of the problems is, is that, you know, we're in this strange milieu where we're all kind of in yeah. this weird place where we're outside of a party structure. We don't have much top cover. But like, I can't take the narrative seriously because I know the narratives that came before. Like, I know that I don't exactly. hate one. I know that I don't, I don't like, I mean, I'm not like a Putinist. There's nothing mm -hmm. like this, but yeah, you know, I just, but also the attacks just don't really have much teeth because to me, I mean, this is just a, it's a game. This is how it was yeah. played in the past. It was effective in the past. So they're just doing it all over again. There are some true believers, yeah. but for the most part, this is a cynical political game that is very old. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, what one thing I'll say just to kind of get back to the New Deal. Sorry if I'm like monologuing. Yeah. Stop. No, no. This is that's, this is perfect. That's why you're here. Yeah. It's sort of ordering me. I can't stop. You know. I'm like let's go. The horsey in front of Kmart. Um, but I'll say, uh, <laughs> but I'll say that. So one thing I want people to kind of understand, and like at a at a large, you know, kind of macro view here, what when FDR, so when FDR came rose to power. There was this crisis point once he had won the election and in between the inauguration and the election, there were some serious problems going on with the stock market. There was there was a lot of capital departure, like there was a lot of capital outflows from the United States, people hoarding their money and trying to send it abroad because this massive disaster was looming on the horizon. Okay. Though you kind of see this changing of the guard at this time. You have Hoover, Herbert Hoover, who has been maligned throughout history. He was maligned in his day, had everything pinned on him. Um, He he and his administration was scrambling to fix this problem. And they were trying. And and I'm not saying this because I have like a partisan like uh, affiliation, anything like that. I'm just trying to be accurate as possible. He had a very conservative approach. He he wanted to he wanted to protect the U.S. economy. He wanted to make sure that the money was not going to depart, make the the matters worse. He knew that we were going to have to pass through a rough patch. He was hoping that we could minimize the damage, especially on regular folks. Okay, that was something that was very uh, important to them in that interim between you know, the winning of, you know, Roosevelt's winning of the election and the inauguration. During this time, some some disastrous news was coming into the White House. Uh, Hoover had a team assembled trying to fix this. He had people in the Treasury trying to work, you know, with Wall Street, trying to get this thing fixed. Um, there was panic, though. And so what Hoover, Hoover, you know, if you think about this from a president's perspective, his his street cred, his brand is very damaged because things are going very poorly. Uh, what he wants to do is he wants to restore people's confidence because the worst thing that can happen during these bank runs is people panic. And this is this mm-hmm. makes things even deeper and de- even worse. So he has a plan and he reaches out to Roosevelt because Roosevelt's going to be the incoming president. He's the new fresh face. He's kind of like the Obama walking into um, mm-hmm. you know, financial crisis. He wants FDR, he, he sends him a telegram and he wants FDR to reassure people before, like immediately, before he takes the podium, before he gets sworn in, please, would you please like, here's our, our strategy, but we want to reassure people so that they keep their money in the system. We can't afford to have it exit the system or have people panic. We do not want more regional bank failures. Uh, and it would be a lot if the incoming president were to reassure people and tell them to just, you know, hang tight. We're going to fix this. And what's really interesting, and this kind of just speaks to the way that Roosevelt is or was, is he got the telegram, uh, his own campaign. I mean, they're all partying and having a great time. Um, he gets mm-hmm. the telegram and his team is kind of like looking at him wide eyed. Uh, what do you know? This is serious. This is a big problem. You know, like, what are we going to do? And the expectation is, well, of course, like Roosevelt will want to, you know, reassure people and save the system, help be part of that. Roosevelt got that telegram and stuck it in his desk and then just kindly, you know, smiled and went about his business and held on to it, did not respond for weeks. And so things are deepening, worsening. Hoover's wondering, like, where is Roosevelt? You know, 
and he's still they're still scrambling to try to address this. Things are getting worse. Um, the, a lot of the things that he had predicted were would happen are happening, and finally, like he reaches out to he reaches back out to the campaign, and essentially what happens is is FDR responds by saying, "Oh, you know, I." I had sent a telegram back, but it got, it must've been lost. It, you know, <laughs> essentially he just kind of hangs on to it until inauguration yeah. does not lift a finger. Okay. Yeah. And when he gets sworn in, it's this epic moment. Right. And, you know, he gives this incredible speech where he declares a state of emergency and essentially says like, we're going to fight this. Like we're going to fight a war. We're going to mobilize the population. I mean, this is, and really, if you compare this to rhetoric in Europe at the time, it sounds very fascist. Okay. Um, yeah. We're going to mobilize the population. This is going to be a militaristic attack on, you know, this problem, you know, we, and essentially in, in coming weeks blames everything on his predecessor. The Republican party has been, you know, they are big spenders. They've been spending all this money, high levels of corruption, so on and so forth. The funny part, though, is, is that initially he comes in and there's this plan and Hoover's people want, you know, they want to integrate this plan and to fix things. And what Roosevelt does is he adopts Hoover's plans exactly. And he pulls on people from Hoover's administration to address this crisis. But then he yeah. goes around and blames Hoover and says that there was no plan that Hoover had no idea what, you know, and it became this really powerful political moment where w wow. one of the reasons why Hoover is so dour in that picture that everybody knows when they're driving around in the uncovered vehicle, you know, and he's, and FDR is all smiles and Hoover looks like he has a sour mm -hmm. expression. It's because he knew he was getting played really bad. Yeah. He got played hard. Okay. So he goes out like yeah. a rail from Washington. And why I bring this up is I, this kind of sp this little snapshot that most people do not know, because when you actually start yeah. digging into that for the first several weeks of the New Deal, uh, you can see that this is this is kind of the M.O. This is the way that Roosevelt manages this crisis. It is not according yeah. to a plan. Roosevelt was not an economic genius. In fact, Roosevelt did not really. I mean, I'm saying this I'm not saying Hoover necessarily knew better, but yeah. Roosevelt had no idea what he was doing in the beginning. It was very much a political move that had economic consequences throughout. Okay. That's kind of the yeah. new deal. It's actually more of a political project than it is an economic one. And that people yes. don't understand that. And that's where the lore, which you talked about with boomers, that that's the lore is that he brings in all these like whiz kids and smart people and professors and they come in and they fix everything but what it really was is this was political consolidation with economic with an economic with economic components and pieces that people yeah. can identify with um so one last thing i'll say sorry and i'll, I'll, I'll no, my no. Breath, interject but i the thing to recognize as somebody you know we're americans living in 2023 and we talk about the constitution and we talk about you know, the assaults on our rights and, and all this, you know, we, we look back at 1776 like it was yesterday and we wonder why things are so different. How do we get back there and all this? People have to realize, you know, as there's these major changes within the U.S. economic system and, and our political system over the course of centuries. And as you get to FDR, there was the constitutional order was fragile at that point. 
And I would argue, my thesis here would, with FDR would be that he upended the constitutional order that was left. It was over after this. The New Deal yeah. and the subsequent after the war, this was the end of the American constitutional order. I'm not saying that the Constitution does not exist, but I'm saying it was, mm -hmm. it, it was really irreparably changed after this period of time. And there's a reason why things feel so out of sorts, why it doesn't line up. It feels so off mm -hmm. from where things were prior. The rhetoric is the same, but it mm -hmm. looks, the landscape is fundamentally different. It was, that's my argument would be that Roosevelt upended the constitutional order and we're living really in the aftermath of that. So like constitutional yeah. arguments and going back to the founders, you're you're kind of screaming into a void. I I empathize with that, but you have to grapple with the New Deal if you want to make those arguments. Yeah, I I think that's right. I think people don't realize you know the extent to which the New Deal changed everything. It also changed the Overton window in the sense that like conservatism, you know, so-called conservatism, the right, you know, the the opposition to the New Deal was in a completely different place before the New Deal. And that redefined it. You know, once you have the conservative movement, which was basically an artificial creation in the 50s and 60s, um, they, you know, that was part of their operation was not to go back and pursue some sort of Robert Taft, uh, you know, un undoing mm -hmm. the effects of the New Deal. But it, it made a new starting point. You cannot yeah. in public life anymore question what happened. This is the way American society is organized now. And anything before that, it's just ridiculous and silly and not worth anyone's time. The New Deal restructured America. It put it placed the sovereignty of the institutions in Washington and the bureaucracy. And it's and it is the, you know, it was the river that basically transitioned from we have these old concepts of like the constitutional convention and popular sovereignty. Uh, those things were given heavy blows in the progressive era, even in the Civil War, but in the New Deal it basically created something, an entire new beast. Uh, and we could never return to anything before that um, legally. You know, be, you, you would have to have, you would have to have another like revolution to undo the effects of the new deal. It was that systemic. It was that hegemonic. Um, and I don't think people realize the extent to which the new deal changed everything. And it put us on a path toward, uh, you know, even even things like the civil rights movement, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the the civil rights regime, the new constitution that was created in the 60s. All of that could not have happened if it wasn't for the, the so-called managerial revolution that happened in the 30s. I think that's man, that's very well said. I think that's exactly right, is that, you know, this this constitutional order that we recognize was very much replaced and and like people today will complain about congress not doing anything congress is doing everything that congress is allowed to do which congress is allowed to make money like that's really like they're allowed to fundraise to pull in funds make money uh you know insider trading all that because they yeah. were bought off long ago if they were to flex their power because you know this is the thing is that the constitution like everybody likes to get into the details and i think it's more useful to take more of like a you know first principles thing the mm -hmm. the constitution prior you know this the war you know civil war changes things a lot by the way but you know moving past that you still have somewhat of a constitutional order that is somewhat recognizable i wouldn't say that the american 
public exists the way that people say, but at the same time, the constitutional order is still there. What really changes after this, as we get closer, you know, and as the New Deal comes along and, and from the New Deal, you get like the war, you know, I mean, the war making, the powers of the presidency change. Before this, you have legislative supremacy. So right. when we talk about co-equal branches of government, the way that the founders understood that wasn't that they were completely equal in power. The, the founders were, it's, it, in their day, it was just a given fact that, that legislative supremacy was the way in which this would work, that the way that the yeah. people's consent would be integrated into government would be through legislative supremacy. It got completely changed after this period of time. You do not have legislative supremacy. You don't have it today. A good example for those who might not understand that is if you look at Rand Paul uh, interrogating Anthony Fauci, perfect example. Yes. We might like Rand. I like him. I think he's a decent fellow. I think he's one yep. of the better ones in there. But notice who's in control during those exchanges. Yes, it is fun to get into this, you know, this pomp and ceremony of this whole thing. It's fun to feel yeah. excited when he goes after Fauci. This is what Congress does best. They are great performers. They put on an excellent show. They get some sound bites. They pull in donations or whatever. But like, who's in control here? It's Anthony Fauci. Who's asking yeah. the question of whom? You have a ceremonial figure who's, who's given their five minutes of fame to talk to power, to talk mm -hmm. to arbitrary power, to talk to the operational side of the U.S. government, which is in control, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. One has power, one has authority. So Congress supposedly has authority, but they do not have power. And their power was really, I mean, this was it was sold off long before any of these guys showed up. I'm not trying to let them off the hook, uh, but at mm. the same time, when when Roosevelt came in, and it wasn't just Roosevelt, I mean, a lot of change happened between now and, and the 1930s, but this, this really got put set into stone at that time. Roosevelt was able to buy off Congress. He bought off Congress through these policies, these profligate, this profligate spending. I mean, it's interesting because when he came in, he was attacking Hoover for being a big spender. That was his thing. Yeah. He was, he actually, <laughs> the New Deal was couched as like a economically conservative plan. I mean, it really resonated yeah. because Democrats were fairly conservative, especially in the South. So you have yes. a lot of people that are, are really, you know, OK, I like this. Like the reason why we're here is because they were so like spend happy and and you know he's able to cement that in people's minds as a narrative and then you know he spent more money within the the next five years than any all the u.s presidents including hoover combined right and yeah and this is how he buys off congress and this is and this has been the this has been the way things are ever since yeah i yeah. i just want to i just want to echo that because that's what i was referring to when i talked when i mentioned the popular sovereignty i mean before any bureaucracy or agency all of those things were accumulating power, but they were still still had a dynamic of subservience to the legislative powers. And you know, in that situation, you do have someone like a, you know who would be analogous analogous to a, a Fauci. They would be scared of someone like Rand Paul because they knew that in the legislature lied the power of the people. Everything yes. switched after that. And when you have something. Where a, where you know a bureaucracy is supposedly reporting to uh, Rand Paul, who's sitting up there, you know, overlooking him. What you're really seeing is like it's it's um it's fun and it's exciting because we all hate Fauci, but 
Rand Paul's actually not exercising any power. Fauci is not scared. His position is not in jeopardy. The power of the U.S. administrative state yeah. is not in jeopardy. Uh, it is performative. It's fun. It gets lots of views. People get excited. But there's no there's no power dynamics going on in the way we think they are. You know, he's not scared yeah. of Rand Paul. Rand Paul could be just <laughs> easily destroyed by um, the, the people who the interest that Fauci represents. And I think that easily yeah. explains the switch of dynamic uh, really clearly. Yeah. Yeah. There's cause there's nothing he can do to him. What, what can Rand Paul on his own ever do to him? No, nothing. Or even, right. even the Republican party, like there, there's nothing they, oh, they, they can, you know, call a committee and do, do more investigations, but those never go anywhere. And um, this is, this is what the administrative state was. It, it claimed yeah. sovereignty. It, it, it's the thing yeah. that stole sovereignty and the legislative branch became performative. It became like a sort of a pacifier uh, for the yeah. for the masses in middle America, especially um, that they thought they would have representation in Washington. But all of that ended effectively in terms of power in the New Deal. Yeah, That's my exactly. I mean, my where I, where I live uh, in particular, like uh, it's 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 hard for people to, to comprehend this. Like where I live, I live in the first district of Minnesota. That's my my congressional district. And it's very rural. Uh, and uh, whoever gets elected, usually it's a Republican, but sometimes we have Democrats. And whoever is elected, his his priority, his his main reason for being in Congress is to ensure that farmers get all of the subsidies that that exist uh, and to keep the sub keep the, the spigot of money flowing to them. And that's not by accident. And you, you look at other congressional districts, they'll have a military base or some some large military industrial you know, complex a factory there. Um, and that's that's what drives things. Every single congressional district is plotted out where there, there are particular subsidies that they have to defend. And that's that's the reason for existence I mean, as, as a congressman is mm -hmm. is that particular thing. And so that's how they have them. And that, that has its origin in, in this time period where you didn't have these massive subsidies that, uh, so you, so you look at like my Congressman Brad Finstead, you know, supposed to be this big mega guy, but really behind his name shouldn't say R it should say, you know, Cargill or Monsanto, right? That's, that's who he represents because that's the economic interest that, that drives, um, you know, our, our, our entire region. And so it, that you multiply that across 435 plus, you know, hundred senators. And that's, that's what Congress is today. It is, it, it, they're, they're just uh, figureheads who keep the flow of largesse going into their, their uh, particular areas. And, and that's, that's how we have to understand what Congress is and, and the major change, because before that he would be able to be independent. He would be able to actually represent his people and their particular interests of, 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 of what, what they believe and what matters to them. And, and now that's, that's gone, completely gone. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, I wanted to get into, you know, the, the Fauci thing a little bit more um, and, and just this dynamic between the administrative state, uh, the managerial state, wh whatever we want to call it, uh, that that's ushered in the new deal, because you, you had a presidency that in, from 2017 to 2021, that was not aligned at least entirely with the administrative state. And, and so you see this like with COVID and the thing that people credit, and there's plenty of things to criticize Trump that I think we're, we're all agreed here that you know, the mistakes that he made and so forth during COVID. Um, but uh, I, I look at it, it, most people look at it as though like he's in control of the government 
and he's in control of Fauci and control of all of these things because he's the the executive. And and that's that simply isn't the case, right? He, you know, Fauci is in control of him more than the other way around, right? I mean, so you know, am I right there? You know, unpack that for me, uh, Lafayette and, and CJ. I mean, is that is that accurate to say um, when we when we analyze COVID through this lens? Well, yeah, you know that that's the thing is like it. I I'm I'm pretty easy on Trump for the most part. I mean, I because. Like we have to realize, like I, I also have problems with policies, you know, policy. Yeah. But we have to remember that, you know, the the president of the United States, it's the people around him. It's yeah. who can manage the pull these levers, who can wield power, who can twist arms the right way. Notice how quickly things move with Biden. Is it because Biden yeah. is a big policymaker? Is it because he has great leadership? <laughs> Now, what he brings to the table is he's a creature of Washington and he has powerful relationships. So that's true. He does have those things. But he has people behind him that are that know what they're doing. Okay, They are able to flex the administrative state in a way that gets things done for the people that they, you know, that they they represent and serve, which are not necessarily the American people. Right. Uh, We all know this. But this is the thing is like the president, when he's operating against a hostile administrative state. Like let's let's look back into history in the 20th century and see what happened to presidents that crossed that line. I would yeah. argue JFK crossed that line, Nixon crossed that line. So, you know, and people have their theories on what happened and why. I would argue that both of those presidents suffered dire consequences for crossing a line, okay? And I don't think that that needs to be necessarily like some you know, people will say there's a conspiracy behind like really what it is, is that, you know, JFK was JFK was directly challenging the the Department of Defense in a way and and other agencies in government in a way that was not expected. And it caused a lot of a lot of internal turmoil. Yeah. Nixon had ambitions to wield the administrative state in a different way. He also had ambitions to go against the consensus on some of the policies that the that the administrative state was very invested in that factions within the administrative state. And this is the thing is, it's not Democrat, like, let's transcend Democrats and Republicans. That's kind of mm-hmm. a congressional thing. That's part of the performance art. But like, yeah, the administrative state is full of powerful factions and powerful factions that that do compete against one another, whether they're both liberal factions within. I mean, you have to realize, like, you know, what Biden's bringing in is going to be like, these are not the same. They have overlapping interests with some of the same players from like the never Trump types that, you know, were holdovers from Bush. Obviously, they both like war and all those things like that. But these are different factions within the administrative state that are competing against one another. It like the political yeah. lens that we have is so it's just so it obscures so much of what goes yeah. on in there. So when you throw a guy like Donald Trump, who who really like he I would say he had a level of naivete walking in there that he wins this election and he walks in there and he realizes that he is managing this giant, complicated machine. He's supposedly managing this. He has authority over yeah. it. This complicated machine that's that's just wrapped in layers of secrecy that is complicated, convoluted, that you have restrictions of information that can't even make it up even when he requests it. And he's trying to manage this. I mean, it's just incredible things were able to get done at all, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you even see this like with the military with with him, where they were they were lying to him about troop levels in Syria, uh, like, like flat out. They just they said, nope, we don't have any troops there, and oh, actually, we have twenty thousand or something like that. Uh, you know, and they, they just flat out lied. Uh, and there 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 are no consequences for it. What can what can he do? And you'll you'll maybe have the people like now in, in the context of the primary that like back DeSantis would have. Well, you should have fired them. You should have fired them. Um, but like what you're saying, I mean, you look at the example of JFK, you look at the example of Nixon. Um, he knows that there's a line that he can cross where he's going to end up dead or he's going to end up gone um, and, and in prison like now. Um, and and you even have I mean, you have the, the memo during 2020 from General Milley saying that if he he orders the troops to put down the riots, they will they'll coup him. They'll remove him from office like that. That's a That's an extant memo that that's real. It's not, you know, made up uh, that they threaten these things to him. And so I think people have also like generally speaking, have the same level of naivete about what the what the administrative state, what the what, you know, the so-called deep state is and, and the power that it has, that if, if you are not aligned with it, if you're not a creature of Washington, like like uh, Biden is and, and many of the Republicans are. Um, you're, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to wield power. That's, that's the reality. Even if you have this nominal power, according to the constitution that, that largely doesn't exist anymore, it, it, uh, you're not able to wield it. Um, so the people that think like, oh, well, if we elect Ron DeSantis and he gets in there, he's going to be able to, to clean things up. He'll be able to drain, actually drain the swamp. And it, it's, I, I think it's incredibly naive. Uh, to think that even if, even if, you know, uh, a man like DeSantis really is, you know, our guy and goes in there and, and begins to, to wage these battles and, and maneuver and so forth, he, he is also going to be limited in the exact same way um, that he doesn't have, he, he, he doesn't have power over them, even, even though this- he does on paper. This brings up a really interesting point because, um, you know, one of the things that you you get a, a lot of pushback from it, from like conservatives or classical liberals is like the extent to which if a because because on paper, the you know, the, the president is the head of the executive branch. All of the yeah. agencies, the bureaucracies, the departments, they all supposed to report to the president. He's in charge of them. They work at his permission and at his uh, direction you know they so in order to actually solve this problem what you need is a president to exercise his actual new deal given authority to put them into line and to put them in check even to eliminate he can eliminate any president can eliminate departments they can cut their funding they can do whatever they want it's perfectly in line with the new deals um you know power dynamics on paper but if a president actually did that he would be called anti-constitutional. He would be called yeah. Uh, yeah. a dictator. All these things that's actually, it's its within his own power structure right now for the president to end the administrative state. Now, power yeah. exists uh, in, in a realistic way beyond just how it does on paper. But that yeah. would not be a move of a dictator. It would actually be a move of a constitutional, uh, you know, uh, you know um, purist for him to do that. Like that'd be completely yeah. legitimate. And yet that would be called dictatorship. The removal of power from all of these bureaucracies and departments, the legitimate removal of power from these things 
back into the presidency is both constitutional and consistent with the New Deal situation. And yet all of the conservatives and classical liberals and anti, you know, anti-woke, uh, you know, centrists, all of them would oppose it on the basis that it's di uh, dictatorial. Yeah. So That's you can imagine. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. You could imagine like, say Donald Trump wins in 2024 and he takes office somehow. Um and he just fires all of the top level leadership of the FBI and doesn't replace them, just fires them all, right? You can imagine the articles in National Review about how the president is a dictator and this is this you know is an attack on our democracy and and all of this kind of stuff. When it's like, where did the FBI come from? It came from you know the revolution of 1933. It came from the New Deal, and it it didn't exist in the original constitutional order at all. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, but they think that it's central to our our government and our and all of it. It's it's so it's so ludicrous. Um, but well, uh, yeah, one yeah, something in there. I think that's a good point because one of the things that I've been trying to it, it's hard because you have to kind people Americans. We've grown up in this, so it's really difficult to think outside of it. And it's been, I mean, in every every new regime, and I use that term now, not like necessarily. You know, uh, I mean, I use it. I use it with a little venom sometimes. But like, let's just think of like this new order that has come out. We've all grown up with this, so you know, it's every regime is going to try to integrate the past, make it seem like this seamless progression that we're always getting better. You know, this whole we all mm -hmm. we've watched this Bill on the Hill. Yeah. You know, we yeah. have you know talk about George Washington as if he would like come here and just preside over this system and, and recognize it. All this stuff, yeah, but. You know, the thing that the thing that I those I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm going to be honest, I'm a patriot. And what I mean by that is I I'm 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 bullish on America. I believe in I believe yeah. in uh, I believe that uh, this place is exceptional. I'm not I you know, I respect uh, Moldbug's thoughts, for example, on, on kind of how we got here. But I, I don't I I don't think we need to I, I'm not I, I believe that the that where we came from was was pretty incredible, and I believe that constitutional order um, is something that we that we we need to reconcile with. But there are certain principles at play there that are very relevant still. What that means is there the, the idea of having a kind of balance it, it, with a country of this size, with the culture that we come from, with where we started. Americans would like to have a sense of of that popular consent back in their government. They would they still yeah. want the balance because the you know the founders and the the people that that came before that established this system of government were fairly conservative about doing so. They did not have a, as opposed to the contrary to the narrative that we all kind of inherited here is that this was not a a a, a religious or spiritual and I'm using that in a different term than maybe I would. It was not a it was not a sense to reform people spiritually. It was not to make them better souls. Okay. And I, what I mean by that, I'm not like going against, you know, ancient philosophy. What I'm saying is it was not this progressive machine that on the other end, you would become more equitable and you would be, you know, you would let go of all your attachments to people, place, religion, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things come out on the other side uh, you know, stripped of anything else. It was really trying to balance out the interests of people and factions and groups in so in so much that we would still people would be able to retain a level of liberty while not having to be completely reformed by the state. And this this is still relevant, I think, today. Mm -hmm. So if somebody were to come along, if a president were to actually try to flex those powers, 
they, you know, what what they can really focus on is the idea of like, you know, this, these these questions of liberty and tyranny that really gave rise to the American system of government are more relevant today than ever. Really, they're not irrelevant. They are relevant. Mm -hmm. People want to have retain a level of liberty in the classical sense because yes. we're watching the same process go on in a way that it is becoming intolerable to people because it's at your it's inside of your own home. Right. Like this is not we're not just talking about people that are angry about taxes alone. This is yeah. about the yeah. state trying to take your children and reform them and create them into a, a regime toady. We don't want this. Yeah. This violates something. Well, what does that violate? It violates something sacred. So these are the same questions yeah. Yeah. that they were grappling with. I'm not arguing for a return, but like the idea is, is that why did leg legislative supremacy die? In America, why did it die? Where did it go? And the thing is, when you call these people out who are using the mantle of democracy, they have no good response to that. That you know, they yeah. can't answer to this system. They're they're having they're there. There's a level of of dissonance between the two. That's where we should focus our energies on. You know, I really yeah. think that you press that and say, you know, why is legislative supremacy gone? Why doesn't the president have control over? the executive branch of government? Why do we have foreign policy crafted in think tanks and then just given to the powers that be and it gets implemented? There's no yeah. check from the people on this. Isn't this contrary to the entire project? And I mean, really like that's, there's a level of legitimacy that we have in making those arguments. Because even if I can't say yeah. that the system we have today is like wonderful and great and there are flaws in the system that came before, yes, recognize that. Yes, maybe, you know, we can talk about monarchy and all these other things, but really when it comes down to it, when we talk about here and now, we have a legitimate case to be made. And I don't see why we don't make that case constantly because they yes. don't have a good response to this. No, I, I want, I want to ask a question. So, you know, there's, there's two approaches to dealing with this situation. Like you have Paul Gottfried, you know, he thinks, um, you know, there's, there's basically no way of, um, you know, setting up a hopeful future unless you deal with the administrative state. You know, he thinks the administrative state needs to be uh, assaulted. He thinks it needs to be burned yeah. to the ground. That's kind of his instinct. Whereas you would have someone like Adrian Vermeule, who basically wants to sanctify the administrative state and use it for his purposes. Um, which, I mean, do you do you have any other alternative, or do you have like some sort of instinct on that uh, debate? Yeah, I I do, um, and that's yeah. I think that's an interesting. Those are that's a great juxtaposition between those two individuals. Uh, Vermeule, I have no issues with him. I find his content interesting. I mean, he recently unfollowed me, so it might be because of this. Because I do side <laughs> more with Paul Godfrey on this position. I, I think the story of the 20th century is every president who recognizes problems with the administrative state trying to either grab it and to put it under under his thumb and try to control it right this really difficult incomprehensible system or they try to imbue it with a spirit right and we saw this in the 60s i mean really like what are we dealing with we're dealing with a spiritual a spiritual reawakening in people i'm not saying it's a good spirit necessarily but a spiritual reawakening that came about in the 1960s and it has been completely like our administrative state has been imbued with this spirit and it's right. 
evolved, right? Like, why are we talking about strange concepts like equity? Like, why do these people sound like communists from the 50s? Like, they sound exactly the same. Like, why is that? Yep. Well, it, we have been, we've tried to imbue the spirit into the administrative state. I don't think these things are good. I think that really returning back to those original questions, and I'm not saying we have to arrive at the same place that the founders did. We are a different people. This is a different time. So there's some major differences there. But these same questions that they were asking are, to me, are way more important to focus on than trying to come in and tinker with this machine and make it work for us. Because we've tried that for 100 years, and it has not worked. So I'm I'm with Godfrey that... I think that a president should use his constitutional authority right. to rein this thing in. And when I say rein, I mean it needs to be whittled down to a nub of what it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would yeah. be considered, uh, you know, authoritarian and you know, t- you yeah. know, tyrannical. And it's just funny because you're literally removing power from the greatest enemy that America has had in its own soil. <laughs> And that's the problem. That's the tyranny. It's just, it's amazing how people are thinking about this dynamic so backwards. Yeah. 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 Uh, One thing I want to get back to is, you know, some of the history and and unpack it a a little bit more. I mean, we, uh, we've, we've only just touched on it. It seems like, Um, I mean, you have, you mentioned uh, like foreign policy being totally outside of, of, you know, popular sovereignty. Um, and and you see this with World War in like nineteen the election of nineteen forty, uh, Roosevelt's re, you know uh, second reelection, the he ran on keeping the United States out of the Second World War like he that was his his main theme of his election was we're not going to go to war we're not going to be in a foreign war meanwhile behind closed doors he's doing everything he can to get the United States into the Second World War. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's part, I mean, that's also where this, the genesis of, of how foreign policy is conducted in America, where the people have absolutely no say. And, and even more so now you have mass media that is able to manipulate people into, into uh, believing whatever the regime wants with regard to foreign policy, to think that, you know, today it's in America's national interest for there to be this, this war in the Donbass um, that, that it's so important that America is involved in. Um, and, and so like you, you, you see that, I mean, how, how pivotal, you know, I guess maybe it's an understatement to ask it this way, but how pivotal is America's entry into world war two within the, within the paradigm of the new deal revolution and in, in the formation of, of the American regime, the American uniparty, like how, how, how central is that? Oh, it's huge. I mean, this is, this, this, uh, it's really interesting because I mean I as a by you know as a bystander right and looking at history it's just it's mm-hmm. fascinating to dig into this and to see what perceptions among the public the American public was prior to the war during the war after the war and then and to see how the Americans viewed themselves right I mean like yeah. we we were never I mean America was never much I mean people use it all the time there was I don't like the term imperialism but it's like yeah there was there were obviously america was was more than willing to go to the mat in its sphere of influence the monroe doctrine mm-hmm. is real but at the same time america was not a world empire as we understand no. it today this was a huge cultural shift for americans who had who you know the expansionist idea you know this is very much rooted in like the frontier not necessarily like going to the other end of the world what Americans pulled off in World War II is nothing short of incredible. I never, you know, people 
people people love to like dog on the United States uh, how we conducted the war, and there are many problems. Like I, I recognize mm -hmm. that, but it's n nothing short of incredible what Americans pulled off. Really, like if yeah, you just take some emotions out of it, it's phenomenal. And like just because we allowed the Soviets to really like fight off you know, the Germans during, during for the bulk of it, like that's, to me, that's a huge win. That's not necessarily like, I don't think sacrificing lots of Americans uh, it, against Germany when we have another problem in the Pacific is like wise. So like people try to use mm -hmm. that to talk on the American, like that's just stupid to me. I, mm -hmm. but like at the same time, what happens during this? Well, like you're right, this Americans aren't really wanting to go to war. You know, and the isolationist smears come out. Right. And you have the American First Committee, which is these guys are all mostly like World War One veterans. They know what's up. Yeah. They know exactly yeah. what's going on. They see this war mobilization effort and they they see a big problem. They do not want another a repeat even bigger this time of what they already went through and saw. And the shenanigans, the war profiteering, all this kind of stuff that was going on during World War One. that was a major scandal in American society at the time. There was a, a real like pall over the whole thing. So like people have that memory still. Many of these guys were over there. They saw the bad things. They they saw the failures. It was a disaster. And the progressives, like because it was a disaster, kind of turned their venom against regular Americans for not like celebrating the project. Mm -hmm. And so like mm -hmm. this this kind of anger, reactionary anger is like building within, you know, where, where you guys are from. I mean, we're really like, well, I'm not exactly sure where you're from, CJ, but I know, uh, I know, I know you talked about Minnesota and this. I mean, this is really yeah. where you get this huge movement. A lot of these like farmer types, right? Like people, it's huge over there. America first blows up in these places because mm -hmm. they want to stay out of the war, right? But you're right. FDR is able to mobilize in his war efforts, very important to him. And what's interesting is like, this is start where you start to see the growth of what we would call like the security state uh, prior to the dropping of the bomb and all that. And communist infiltration is you have, you have people that have legitimate concerns about this and they rally around the America first committee. Right. And what happens is FDR, you know, Hoover was always like Hoover. I would say Hoover had like Hoover was a true blue, like American. He was not a communist or anything like that. But Hoover's first and foremost priority was to enlarge the FBI, to give it more power. He had dirt on lots and lots of people on both parties, right? He was probably more Republican-minded, but he was he was a creature of this institution. And, yeah, you know, when FDR is starting to see that there's this reaction, that people are kind of starting to catch on to what's happening and they're being very critical about it, and they're writing him letters, right? They're writing him letters saying, you know, please don't do this. Like, I, I just saw, you know, the war mobilization. Like, I think this, we don't want to go to war, yada, yada. And he hands those telegrams over to the FBI. And the FBI starts looking into all those names of these little old ladies and people that are sending letters. And mm -hmm. he starts sending the FBI to go and, like, take license plates at, you know, take down license plates at these America First rallies where they're giving speeches about the war. These veterans are coming out. And then... In token with that is that these files that the FBI is collecting on people that are opposed to the war are suddenly falling in the hands of friendly journalists that are smearing these people, that are making it sound like there's a second brown, you know, there's a, a brown scare on the horizon. These people are fascist. Yeah. Many of these people, there were there were people that were sympathetic to fascism within the movement, just like you have with anything. But like there were people within FDR's administration that were sympathetic to fascism. People don't realize yeah. that. So like. 
you know, this was just, it was like this other thing that was going on. So of course you're going to have some people and you had some weirdos in the group, but really they didn't, I mean, everything I've dug into it, they didn't really define mm-hmm. the organization. There were communists in America first. Like people don't get this. It's like, it was yeah. primarily an issue oriented about not going to war. So people yeah. all had their own reasons, but FDR was very effective at using intelligence capabilities alongside journalism to destroy this movement. And it was still very robust up until Pearl Harbor. I mean, it was very, very strong. And you had people that you had guys like John T. Flynn, you had, Mm -hmm. uh, you had like, you know, you had a lot of these old, old timers that had been through and watched this transformation were critical of the way that FDR was accruing power and the lies he was telling because they were, you know, and they would write articles about this. And, you know, the administration would call and get these guys fired from their jobs. You know, like he would call a newspaper and they'd fire this journalist for criticism. I mean, all these things that are so commonplace today, this was kind of a a new thing. And this was happening because of the war. You're right. The Roosevelt administration very much wanted to mobilize for war. Now, whether or not they wanted to go to war, I tend to believe that FDR definitely wanted to go to war and he made it so that we would eventually go to war or get very, very close to it. Uh, That's my opinion. People, you know, people, some people do not like to hear that, but I I think that if you look, dig into the evidence, it's just, it's abundantly clear that this was kind of in the, in the works for a very long time. Very similar in my mind is 9-11 happened you know, there were there were plans and interests in trying to go into Iraq and they they were finally given the light of day. So like this yeah. is kind of how politics works is sometimes you hold your yeah. cards for a while. You have a, a game plan, you have your interests. And then once the stars align, you shoot your shot. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read uh, uh, Charles Tansel's uh, Backdoor to War? Uh, this, I mean, it's like 600 pages and he just went through the entire archives, all the all the State Department data. Um have you, have you read that book? No, I need to add that to my list. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it basically, it, I think it's a, a, a pretty dispositive case that he makes that, that just demonstrates the, they were entirely gung-ho about going to war, that, that the plan was war and everything they say publicly was the opposite of what they're doing within the State mm-hmm. Department and within the foreign policy apparatus as it existed. Uh, and, and you see this today. I mean, yeah, like the, the FBI take, you know, uh, basically doxing people and getting them fired and, and all of this. It's like that the exact same thing is what they do today. It is, it is no different. It's only, only just expanded and they have more technological capability and so forth. Um, that that's what they do. Um, they're just, they're not as shrewd of operators as, as FDR was, you know, they're, they're kind they kind of have been handed the system that he's been given, but they're not, they're not nearly at his level of ability. Yeah. And you know what's um, really interesting about that too is yeah. that you talked about you know the smearing and stuff and this like the, he was really good at this, uh, and we do it now it's like commonplace, right? What's really yeah. interesting though is that you know the level of prop the, the tools the propaganda tools that existed at that time were just like during this you know you have radio all of a sudden you have newspapers are huge, um, like it, they wield power in a way that they weren't as effective before, and they start to like because. One thing I didn't say before, but like once FDR ushered in, you know, the, this New Deal program, it's kind of the age of professors. So like these educated, you know, egghead types that maybe in American society before that, like, you know, some strapping farmer from Iowa would kind of be like, yeah, that guy's a nerd. Like really, essentially at the time. And they 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 gain a level of prestige through Wilson, mm-hmm. but into FDR especially 
that is oh, yeah. much higher. And now they have like a regime foothold and they, you know, they go to, mm. they go crazy. And like during the new deal, they're just like going all over the place, trying this, trying that things fail. Mm. Some things work. It's very haphazard. It's all over the place, but the level of prestige that these types get goes up at the same time, journalism and radio, the level of prestige starts to increase where there's, and you see the official relationship that this is more of like, mm -hmm. we now look at the newspapers and we look at these and radio programs as official, like this is coming from official sources and they have this, you know, all the yellow journalism kind of thing kind of starts to like leak out and die, unless you're like a anti-communist on the right, you know, now you, you're still associated with that, you know, kind of that stain. But what's interesting is, all that smearing and, you know, the, they had their own show trials at this time, too. They had all this mm -hmm. stuff going on, but it create and, you know, this as we're propping up the Soviet Union, as we're bending over backwards uh, for the Soviet Union and in the process mm -hmm. being infiltrated by communist, you know, uh, by these communist agents and so on. Like, yes, there's building anger in the heartland. There's all these yeah. people that were maybe against the war. They don't like communism. They don't like how this program has no checks and balances. They don't like how they don't have a voice. Nobody in the newspapers listens to these people. But there's millions. You know, they're probably the bulk. Like, they're really like the backbone. This is like the beginning of the silent majority. You know, these people yeah. are angry. And suddenly when the when this regime finds itself in a pickle when Truman comes along, then now you have this explosion of anti-communist energy, which is very much built yeah. on the resentment developed up during the time of FDR. This is where you get McCarthy and it just blows yeah. up. And so it's this really fascinating thing where it's like a pressure cooker and it expresses itself later in anti-communism. Yeah, I, I, that's that leads me to the next thing, and, and really one place I really wanted to go. Uh, and hopefully, we have enough time uh, for it. we're we're almost out of time here, um, and it's almost like oh, we we almost need another episode just on McCarthyism in in general. Um, is why did it why did it fail, right? Why why didn't McCarthy? I mean, I think maybe maybe you don't think it failed, but I I I think it did. It didn't it didn't root out the communists in. Uh, in the, in the system that didn't dismantle the administrative state, I mean, maybe maybe that's why it failed. Is is you just have a handful of people um, in Congress that are fighting it, and but the entire apparatus still exists. So what um, you know, what are your thoughts there? Oh man, I have many thoughts. I'll try to keep it. I know I've been. <laughs> I'm sorry about all the monologuing. I can't. No, no. This is this is but, this is what we pay you for. Uh, this. Um, <laughs> Oh man, I could uh, communism and uh, the influence of communism in America is just like one of the most fascinating things, um, and I I really think it helps to just to, to to understand the present. Not because like we don't have Soviet KGB agents like link like lurking in the administrative state today. We don't, but we have the the strange deformed like you know offspring of these of these of this infiltrative action, the subversive action mm -hmm. still today. And it's very much a real thing. And so yep. like, it's, there's a reason why I can walk around with a copy of the communist manifesto and nobody will care. There's a reason why I could wear a Che Guevara shirt and I might get some like guy like me, you know, some like Chud type by yelling yeah, at me, yeah. but like, I'm not going to really, so I'm not going to lose my job. Right. No. Like 
interesting, right? I mean, it's just fascinating given the history of the 20th century and the death and yeah. despair and the horrible things that have happened, which we are very much easy to access. Like, why is this not a cultural taboo? Okay. And yeah. so yeah. going with that is during this time, as we talked about the ro- the globalization, the Roosevelt administration was, I mean, the Lend-Lease is a really fascinating thing. I mean, this, you want to talk about winning a war. One of the reasons we won the war is because of Lend-Lease. Whether or not you yeah. think that's a good thing, I don't really care. That's not what I'm saying. It's just, if you look at this just on scoreboard, it was a very effective program in propping up the Soviet Union and keeping them in the game. They would not have been in the game the whole war if they did not have the United States propping them up. And when I say propping them up, they were propping them up. Like, this was... yeah. Literally, I mean, there was we were giving them a level of muscle that they did not have and could not have survived without. And that needs to be, um, you know, addressed. People tend to ignore that. But that was a very effective and important thing to keep the Soviet Union in the game. Now, why was the United States? Why did the United States feel more cozied up to the Soviet Union than maybe like, you know, the Axis at the time? Right. Given that, like, let's let's go back and let's kind of pull peel back the history and go back to the original source, you know, fascism and communism were, were things that were still being like debated about at the beginning of this whole thing, like in the twenties and mm-hmm. into the thirties, it did not have this like dirty word thing to either of them. It, well, there was, but it wasn't like this strong taboo that like we have today. today. Right. It was very different. Like you could be a educated person and talk about this, but, but let's be honest, like most educated people that were also uplifted by the new deal, right. That had a level of prominence and prestige were very sympathetic to communism because it was viewed like, we have to remember that like at the beginning of this whole thing with the Bolshevik revolution, like the left in America was on the, on the ropes. I mean, it was, they had not had, they, they had not won anything. They had nothing to hang their hat on. And when you have Lenin rise and, you know, over in Russia, suddenly for the first time, like a left wing project actually has it's embodied somewhere. And it's not just yeah. embodied in a small way. It is a it is mm-hmm. it is a winner. Right. And they look at this and this just changes the culture of the left in the United States overnight. Right. Yeah. Like gone are the days of like the, you know, the farmer populace and bimetallism. And I mean, all those things get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Deal, but like Bolshevism, communism is suddenly like it. It is a real thing. It is something that mm-hmm. that the left sees as you know we can't be in this middle ground. Socialism was like totally fine in the United States. Like people were socialists, and it was not a big deal back then. And so it was like, well, you know, we're in this middle ground of being of socialism. Communism comes along, and it's like you know we can't be in this limbo anymore. We either got to go like all in, or we got to just hang on to this sinking ship. And they really believed. I mean, people of both of like conservative types and i mean it looked like like capitalism was failing like there was a long history of antitrust and of like have like all these like difficult things that people didn't really feel good about like this this like there were failures that people of of either all stripes could see and had problems with and so there was a lot of educated people who could latch on to something like communism and see that this is prophetic like this is the this is the course of history you know, this is a there's a system, a scientificness about this. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. very much oriented around science. Well, what's the New Deal? It's really like a pseudo scientific approach to managing a country, to managing government, to managing society in a way to reforming mm-hmm. society. 
communism is reforming society elsewhere. Fascism is kind of a response to communism, but is also restructuring society. All of this in the aftermath of war. The United States is undergoing its own transformation as it's trying to manage things scientifically. It's a natural bedfellow to communism. It really is. Yeah. There's intellectuals in America, professors, where they're they, they're convinced that communism is the future. They really are. Like yeah. already before that, it was socialism is the future. Well, communism now looks more realistic, right? And mm -hmm. so one thing I'll just kind of address here real quick as I we I touch on the communism thing is. Whitaker Chambers in his uh, book, Witness, it's very good. He has a line, he has like a, a brief paragraph in there where he was a, for those of who haven't read it, he was a communist agent who was, who was working clandestinely in the United States. He's American, right? But he's working for the Soviet Union, essentially spying, running spy rings, uh, doing all sorts of things like that. There, he's directly involved with spy rings that are in, operating within the administrative state in Washington. And he writes this memoir after he comes out and burns Alger Hiss and there's the trial and all that. But he talks about how the New Deal was not a, it was like a superficial reform movement. It, but like, it wasn't like just, it was superficial on the outside because underneath it, it was a genuine revolution. Like that this was a real revolution against existing traditions. Like we talked about the constitutional order, but it wasn't a revolution of violence like it was in the Soviet Union. This was like a revolution of bookkeeping and lawmaking. And that mm -hmm. one of the things he remarks on is that many of the of the people within the new the new dealers inside the administrative state were not able to recognize communists in their midst, like true blue yeah. Hard caring and working for the Soviet Union communists. They couldn't see them. They were invisible to many of them. And why is that? And he would say that they're because these were revolutionists looking at other revolutionists. Okay. And I yes. think that that's an important part to hold on to because during this time, as America's mobilizing for war, they've already been mobilized economically. They're now mobilized for a world war, right? And it's against yeah. fascism. This buoys this communist contingent within the United States. And there's a popular front which unites, you know, the these liberals within government alongside with actual card carrying communists. And at this time, the Communist Party of America is being directly funded, getting getting their marching orders directly from Moscow. Their leadership yeah. is selected by Moscow. Yes. Soviet agents that are infiltrating the United States, subverting organizations, but also infiltrating the U.S. government. They're getting their marching orders from Moscow and they are being direct. They're directly recruiting from the Communist Party of America. So while that you might have like some little lady in the Communist Party who does not work for the Soviets, but she believes, you know, communism in the future and whatever, mm -hmm. you know, these agents and recruiters are going to these meetings and they're pulling people and they're pulling them into the apparatus of spying. And this is happening on a it's it's happening all over the country from San Francisco yeah. all the way to the United States. And this goes on for years and it is under the cover of war. Some of the people that are that are involved in these spying activities are at the top of the U.S. Treasury, a very powerful institution today, but very powerful back then. Like we have to realize that the yeah. like this is second guy in command of the treasury of u.s treasury is a card-carrying communist taking his orders from moscow okay making decisions he is the architect like this person i'm talking about harry dexter white is the architect yeah. of leader of the imf of these other global yeah. organizations that we all recognize today he is a card-carrying communist yeah. alter hiss within the state department 
very powerful, instrumental in setting up the UN. He's also a card-carrying communist, right? And you go down the list. And so what happens is this embeds itself. It's involved in our intelligence. Our The Pentagon has a huge problem with this. The OSS, the precursor to the CIA, you know, we have, there is a massive infiltration of communist agents within the OSS that even like yes. the, you know, the, the private advisor to the head of the OSS is a card carrying communist and passing information to Moscow. An advisor to FDR is a card carrying communist privy to many sensitive conversations. Yeah. The Soviets yeah. during this in this milieu knew about the bomb before Truman did. They yeah. knew they knew yeah. about the Manhattan Project before Truman did, and he was the vice president at this time. You know, yeah. there were there were decisions where FDR would go to the table to negotiate with Stalin, and Stalin would already know many of the things that FDR was coming there to privately tell him. Okay. This is yeah. this is the problem that is festered. And and there's, you know, there's there's people within the country that are understanding things are going on. Patton was one of those who knew something weird was going on. He knew that like he couldn't trust the intelligence sometimes because he was worried he was getting leaked to the Soviets, right? He mm -hmm. didn't trust some of the cowboy types that were in there working with the, so closely the Soviets. Other people within government felt this way too. And yeah. what you have is you have this building anger and resentment of noticing problems that are not being addressed. And those who would bring them up are being called disloyal or smeared as fascist. And it comes mm -hmm. roaring into focus in the late, in the really like in the late forties and early fifties. And from there you have the rise of McCarthy. Sorry, that was a huge rambling. No, monologue. no, no. Excellent. Excellent stuff. And it's, you know, we, we're we're almost out of time. I know CJ has to get going. He's probably I saw him, you know, typing. He's probably emailing uh, the people right, that he has to CJ. meet with uh, next. No, 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 uh, no, 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 no you're fine. I, uh, I had one. I had one last. I told him I'd be ten more minutes. Um, yeah, I'm uh, talking with very important people. But I have one yes. more question that I wanted to yes. slip in there. Um, this is a fun one. But in your opinion, uh, do you think? like Woodrow Wilson and the progressive movement or FDR and the managerial revolution was more devastating to the course of America. And I know these are kind of related, you know, the two movements, one fed off the other, but if you could pinpoint one as being more, um, uh, you know, worse, worse, more damaging, uh, and more destructive, uh, who would you, who would you point to? You know, I'm going to have to be boring and go with FDR still. I think Wilson late, I think Wilson really kind of, had that it was a spiritual attack on the constitution and on constitutional yeah. order. FDR was the real like deal muscle attack. Like it was, yeah. this is where things like it, it already, we had been primed for this probably through Wilson, but it would, the, the nail was driven by FDR. Yeah. Yeah. That, there that's, you go. There you go. I, yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Uh, it, it, you're definitely right. And, um, you know, you, you set up the, uh, the McCarthyism and, and the communist infiltration and all of that. And it's almost like we need to do a whole nother episode just on that, you know? So maybe, maybe you'll have to come back for part two, maybe next week. I don't know what your schedule looks like <laughs> or, or, but, but, uh, but, uh, I, I would love it if you could, and, uh, get to keep going with this. Cause this is, this is all fascinating stuff. And it's all the kind of stuff that is is withheld from us, right? We we're, we're told about McCarthy and the Red Scare and 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 all of this as though it was bad, as though they're looking for communists under every rock, and it was all fake, like it was a boogeyman. But it was very very real, 
I mean, you see this, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned, you know, your review of the Oppenheimer film, um, but you see this even, even in that movie and, and my, you know, I didn't read your, I, I waited to read your review until I saw the movie and I'm like, I, I agree with this a hundred percent. You're absolutely right. I had the same you know, perspective on the film where, you know, they address it, but it, it's almost kind of dismissed. It's almost kind of like, well, that's just what people were doing in those days. They all, you know, of course they were all communists. That's just the way it was. And, and the evil, you know, the, the evil uh, fascists in the government are smearing this guy. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, if we could spend an entire hour uh, just talking about that film and that context, the, the McCarthyism, I mean, just, just the, the production of the the nuclear bomb and the Manhattan Project and and just how many communists were involved in it uh, or, or fellow travelers at least um, it is it is this fascinating period of American history and it and it really does echo to the current day like like you said it's it's not as though the people running things are these you know are are literal communists that they've they've read Marx or they're 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 Lenin you know they they understand Lenin and and, and Bolshevism or, or or any of this they're, they're kind of these um you know mongrelized hybrids uh you know several generations back that um that um are downstream of it and we're we're living in light of it today uh so yeah I'd love it if you could come back and unpack some of this even more um, I don't know. Well, what we'll oh, discuss yeah. off, off off air, uh, what, what, what that would look like, but, uh, uh, you know, I, any, anything else, uh, we're going to link to all of, you know, to your, your sub stack and, and to, every, you know, and to everywhere else you write. Um, but yeah, any, any parting words as we close up the episode here? <laughs> yeah, I'll keep these short. I, I appreciate all your patience. I could talk. About, I mean, I love this subject, so I could like talk about it forever. I know. I really hate when I get on, if she brings up this period at all, she's like ready to put on the earmuffs because she gets so tired of hearing about it. So I appreciate you guys being my audience over here. Uh, Everybody's turned against me in my house, but I'll say like, um, I would love to come back on and talk about this. I think people, you know, I, I think people need to understand something is like when you start digging into this, it's really easy. Like we say black pill, people will read this yeah. and they'll just be blown away because partially like, you know, you've been drinking milk since you were a child. And now there's this big, nasty dirt, like rotting piece of meat you're being forced to eat. And it's hard. Yeah. Um, like yeah. I said, I'm still a patriot, folks. Like I, I, I love yep. this country. I love America. I love Americans. Um, and I'm proud also of what we've done, even even if there's like grander, like there are problems, there's devil's detail. Yes, I get that. But yeah. like, you know, I'm proud of, I'm proud to say that like, proud of the boys that went over and fought. I'm proud of the yeah. American people for what they've tolerated <laughs> from their government for many years. I love this country yeah. and I want us to succeed. In our, in our interactions with communism, it's kind of dialectical here is there's always an exchange. We were yeah. influenced by them and they were influenced by us. And the influence that we exchanged to them destroyed the Soviet Union eventually. Very interesting history there. But like we're still standing here. We've been yeah. tainted by things. We've had gone through some difficult things. We have a problem on our hands. We all see this. But I'm still I'm bullish on America. I'm bullish on Americans. Uh, we've been through a lot, but there's something special about this place. There's something special about us. And I think we can't forget that as we go through this. Yeah. Sometimes we have to kind of have a little funeral for things. We bury it and we hold on to the burning embers that still have light and heat 
I still think we have many things like that to hold on to and carry forward because where we're going in the future, there will be another transformation. I want the yeah. good things that have maybe fallen by the wayside that, that precede this epic transformation that we encountered in the beginning of the 20th century. I want to see some of these things get addressed and fixed. And I think we have an opportunity to inject good creative things to grapple with the present, to retain our sense of who we are, to keep our souls, to keep God in our lives. Like these things, this is what we should fight for because the changes are happening. And I'll, I'll just say the last thing is if anybody's interested, I've got a substack, ruins.substack.com. I'm analyzing apocalypse now. Um, if that is interesting to you, Vietnam War, um, diving into that and the themes there. And then I, you can always find me over at I am 1776. So thank you for your time, awesome. guys. I'm sorry to uh, harangue you so long, but I appreciate no, it. No, no. Thank you so much for joining us. We, uh, I, this is, you know, one of the best episodes we've ever done. I'll speak for CJ in saying that. Uh, and <laughs> I, I'm so, I'm so glad you could join us. I hope you can join us again very soon to, to keep on discussing this. And uh, uh, for, for CJ, for me, uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, stay dangerous, and we will see you next time.